All right, so Isaiah 49, um, this passage is, um, is referred to by commentators and scholars as one of the servant songs. So Isaiah records basically four, we can call them songs, we can call them just whatever, but, but focusing on the servant of the Lord. There are four occasions in the book that record these things. We've seen one already, um, and, and now we're into the second one, where the servant of the Lord is described and his work is laid out. And now, of course, we know through the lens of, uh, of where we stand in, in biblical history, we know that this is Jesus. We know that the servant of the Lord refers to Jesus. And so what we're getting today is a very beautiful picture of the work of Christ and what he would do. And remember, we got to remember that Isaiah was writing these things hundreds of years before Jesus ever set foot on earth. And so this is an amazing thing because it's telling us things that Jesus clearly fulfills, but it was written very, very long before he actually came. And so um, we're looking at this through the lens of, of uh, our per- position in history. We, so we can look back on Jesus and we can look back on Isaiah and see how these mesh together. Um, so there's a lot here. Uh, again, I say this every week. I feel like I say this every Sunday. There's a ton here. We can't look at everything in, in the detail it deserves. But I really want to just take us through two overarching ideas in this, in this passage. Uh, we're going to look at um, verse 1 of 49 through verse 3 of 50, and we are going to see two big, massive ideas uh, that Jesus accomplishes for us and that he is for us. And so we're going to start by reading verse 1 through 6, and Verse 6, I think, is the real, the linchpin uh, of this passage. It is what really this whole passage centers on. And so we're going to look at that in particular, and then we'll keep reading. Let's read 1 through 6. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. So, so before we get too, too ahead of ourselves, verse 1, first half of verse 1, is, is God speaking, um, interestingly, not to the nation of Israel at this point. He has already spoken to them back in chapter 48. It was mostly speaking to the nation of Israel. Now he's broadening his scope, and he's actually saying, beyond Israel's borders, he's calling everyone to pay attention. He's calling the entire world to, to come to him and listen to him. And so this is, gonna, this is key because what we're about to see about the servant of the Lord applies not just to the nation of Israel, but really to the whole world. Here's what it says. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand he hid me he made me a polished arrow in his quiver he hid me away and he said to me you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified 
But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And the Lord said, he who formed me from the womb to his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my strength has become, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations and my, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All right, so what we're seeing here is this description of Jesus who has not yet come to earth, but these are describing the things that he's going to to do and be about, at least in part, right? It's not the totality of everything he did, but it's talking about Jesus's ministry, his life. And, and he, there's a number of things here that are mentioned. Um, we, we see that Jesus was called um, to be the servant of the Lord long before his birth. We see that he was um, an instrument in the Lord's hand, like a sword or like an arrow. We see that he has he he labored in vain, and that that sounds kind of like really is that really about Jesus? Well, I think this is referring back to just the fact that so many of the people that he preached to and spoke to did not understand what he was talking about and did not embrace him. But ultimately, God is victorious. And that's what verse four says, and then verse five talks about how. Um, uh, he, he's coming that, that he might save his people from their sins. Then verse six. So verse six is the real, I, I, I'm going to say is the linchpin in this whole passage. Verse six says this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Then he says this. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This is amazing. What God is saying is simply this. It is too easy for us to just save Israel. We're going to save the world. We're going to save the nations. He says it's too light a thing that I should just raise you up to save Jacob, which is another name for the nation of Israel, right? Um, he said, we're not, we're not just going to save them. We're going to save the nations. We're going to make you a light to the nations and salvation, that your salvation will reach the world, the ends of the earth. This is an amazing thing because this is exactly what we're told Jesus accomplished. We're seeing two truths here that I want to just hone in on. First, we're seeing that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. So we're going to spend some time talking about what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world. And then secondly, we're seeing that Jesus is the savior of the world. And so that, that Jesus's entire mission was not just to save the particular people of Israel, but to really bring salvation to the world. 
to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. That, that Jesus came to do that. In fact, Jesus tells us in this first point that, that he is the light of the world. He says it directly and clearly in uh, John chapter 8. In John 8, he says, this is verse 12. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says here, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this is, of course, what we're being told in Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light for the nations. Jesus is saying that God has called him to be a light to the world. So what does that mean? What does he mean by saying he's the light of the world? Well, I think it's, really we need to talk a a bit about this and give some context to this. Um, When Jesus says he's the light of the world, what he's telling us is that he is the one that brings clarity to our dark and broken world. That he's the one that makes things clear. You, you have all at some point or another walked into a dark place um, that, you're not, that you weren't familiar with, that you didn't know where things were, right? And, and until you are able to find the light switch and turn on the light, and, and bring, bring some clarity to the situation. You were just wandering around in, in the dark and uh, stumbling around. And so it, Jesus is saying here that he is the light of the world and that he brings clarity and brings um, the, the very things we need to be able to see clearly uh, to us. And, and this really does go back. I think he's referring back um, not just to Isaiah 49, verse 6, but really even further back to the book of Exodus where uh, God displays this truth about being the light for his people in their wandering in the wilderness. We know that God took on the form of a pillar of light that, that, was, um, that was able to guide the people on their journey through the wilderness. And so Jesus is reminding us of these things, that he is God and that he is the light that we need and that the benefits and the comforts that came with God being that cloud of, of that pillar of, of fire in the wilderness, that, that those benefits and that comfort came from him. That is a wonderful and, and important truth for us to hear. Jesus is saying to us this, that that he is the one who protects us. He is the one who guides us through the wilderness. He is the one who, who brings the light that no one else could bring. You know, we need to just be reminded of this because we do live in a dark world. Um, we live in a world that does not make sense to us a lot of the time. 
And we need to keep the supreme claim of Jesus in front of our eyes. We need to be reminded that Jesus is the light of life in every way. He is the answer we need. Uh, So instead of stumbling around in the darkness, wondering what life is all about, um, we we can confidently take another step knowing that Jesus brings the light to us as as we walk through life. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light that shines in the darkness. And the Bible tells us that the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness can never overcome light. Light always overcomes darkness. And so Jesus is that light for us. We also see here in this passage that Jesus is the savior of the world. Um, We see it at the end of verse six. It says that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Jesus came into the world to save the world. He came into the world to bring people together under him from all tribes, nations, tongues, languages. He came to be a missionary to save the world. And and this is not a new biblical concept that Isaiah is bringing out. This has always been what God has been planning to do. We can see it from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. When God calls Abraham to himself, what does he say? He tells Abraham that, that one of his descendants, and that's a reference to Jesus, right? That one of his descendants would be a blessing to the world a blessing to the nations. That was the entire intention of God um, in in starting Israel out with Abraham and moving forward. um, It was always meant to be the blessing of the nations. And many times they lost their way in that calling. And, And Jesus came to ultimately bring it about and to fulfill it. And we see that clearly. Now, what, what, one of the things that's amazing here is and I'm always trying to point this out to you when it happens, is that verse 6 of 49 is actually quoted in the New Testament um, in the book of Acts chapter 13. And so um, I want us to, to go there because I always think it's important when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage, we need to stop and think and go, what is that? How are they bringing clarity to this? How are they showing us what this really means? The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. We're not here to just interpret it on our own whim. We need to see what Scripture says about Scripture. And so in uh, Acts chapter 13, in the context of this passage, Paul, who was still Saul at the time, he eventually becomes Paul, um, and this guy named Barnabas go off on to a missionary journey. They begin to bring the gospel to the nations. And uh, here, they are, um, they're they're speaking to a group of people and here's um, here's what happens. This is 13 of Acts, verse 44 through um, 48. We'll read through 48. Maybe a little beyond. All right, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy 
and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, here's where it's quoted. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So Paul and Barnabas used this passage, this verse in 49.6, to say, listen, this has always been the heart of God to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And of course, they didn't do that through their own work. They were doing this by preaching what Christ had done. And so thankfully for all of us, because most of us watching this today are not ethnically uh, Jewish. And and so um, it's very good news that God wants to save the world because otherwise we wouldn't have a hope in the world to be saved. And so God brings about this salvation through Jesus. He made Jesus the light of the world and the savior of the world. And then Paul and and Barnabas say, hey, you know what? That's true for us too. We are here to bring this light and salvation to the nations by pointing people to Jesus Christ. They're not saying that they're the saviors of the world. They're pointing these Gentiles to the savior in the light of the world. All right, let's keep going because uh, verse 7 through um, 12, let's read those verses. These verses recount how, at least in part, how God is going to save the world through Jesus. So let's read it. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. God is describing the wonderful salvation he offers us in Jesus. Notice how, notice this, salvation is of the Lord. 
He's the one who's doing all these things. We're not the ones accomplishing this thing, these things for ourselves. God is the one who's doing them. Notice the verbs he uses. It says, in a time of favor, I have answered you. He answered us. In the day of salvation, he helped us. It says he will keep us. He will give us as a covenant to the people. He calls out prisoners to freedom. He brings light to those in darkness. He feeds the hungry who are starving and thirsty for salvation. He provides what they need. He leads them in his compassion to life-giving truth. He, he's making the mountains a road and the highways he raises up. He's creating a path to Jesus for these people from the north, from the west, from, from foreign lands. He's calling out these people from their places to come to Jesus and be saved. But he gloriously saves. He saves through helping us, through calling us to freedom, through breaking the chains of darkness, through, through shining the light of the gospel in front of us, through providing us with all that we need to know him. It's a beautiful thing. The Lord has done such a marvelous thing. Jesus has accomplished so much, so much more than we could ever have accomplished for ourselves. In fact, we could accomplish nothing for ourselves. We would have only been stuck in, in prison and in darkness and starving until Jesus appeared. So, the next verse, verse 13, tells us how we should respond to this. How should we respond to the saving work of Jesus? Look at what it says. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and he and will have compassion on his afflicted. The right response of the heart to what Jesus has done for us is worship. It is singing. It is praising. It is rejoicing because the Lord has comforted us and has had compassion on us. He comforts us when, when we are afflicted. He has compassion on us when we have um, gone astray. He is, he, he is doing all of this beautiful work for us in Christ. And the response of the human heart is to sing in joy to him. To sing for joy, to exalt, to lift up our voices. And that is gloriously what we're called to. Now, here's an interesting thing, though, because we're, <laughs> we're not even close to the end of this chapter. We're about halfway through it. Um, if this thing stopped right there, we, we could just go home and go, well, well you are home, but we could, we could all just, you know, uh, go about our day and go, great, let's, let's sing, let's be happy. But I love how honest the Bible is. Because the Bible gives us what our response ought to be 
what it ought to be, but it also gives us what our real response often is. I love this because it, it meets us right where we are. We, we know that these things we've just read in the first half of 49 are true, and we know that they should lead us to singing, they should lead us to joy, they should lead us to uh, the, this hope in Christ, but they don't always. Sometimes our hearts are cold. Sometimes our hearts are hard. And look at verse 14. It says, But Zion said, Zion, of course, is a reference to God's people. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Um, so, so here's the reality, right? right? I, I, I don't think that a Christianity that is all, you know, wonderful and nice and everybody's smiling and you got all this fake kind of happiness, that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity acknowledges that this is not always rainbows and unicorns and whatever. Real Christianity is not just about, you know, sitting on some cloud, wearing a diaper, playing a harp. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is to see Christ meet us in our brokenness. And, And so it gives us here the right response of the heart. The response we ought to have is to sing and exalt. But there are a lot of moments in our life where that's not the response that we have. And the honest response, the real response to what God has done for us in Jesus is not always what it should be, but is instead, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Do you feel forsaken or forgotten by God? Do you feel that way today? I'm sure you've felt that way at some point in your life. I don't think we can be honest and say at the same time that that's never been true. I think many of us have, have felt this at some point or another. And so what I love about this passage is that it doesn't just shove us aside and say, well, you're an idiot for thinking that I'm not your, your good savior. Instead, God speaks in honesty and kindness to those of us that are in a, a period of time where we feel forsaken or forgotten by the Lord. And the rest of this passage from verse 15 through verse 3 of chapter 50 is going to give us three truths that we need to anchor our lives to and, and that as we anchor our lives to these three things, we will begin to see the right response of the heart towards God grow in us and mature in us. 
We're not always going to have the right response to God because our hearts are sinful. They are still in process of being made like Jesus. But as we anchor our lives to these things that he's going to show us about himself, we'll start to see the softening of our heart. We'll start to see a reception, a receptiveness to Jesus that we ought to have. So let's look at them. We'll read verse um, 15 through, um, we'll start with, we'll go to verse 21. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has been born me these? Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, ex- exiled and put away. But who has brought these up? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Now, we'll, um, we'll, we'll just stop there and say this. This is the first thing. It's, it's clearly stated in verse 15 and 16. Here's the truth that God wants us to anchor our lives to. Um, We may be forgetful of him, of all of his benefits, of all of his grace, of all of his love. We may forget those things, but he will never forget us. The accusation in verse 14 is the Lord has forsaken me and he has forgotten me. And what God says in verse 15 is this, can a woman forget her nursing child? The the answer to that is typically going to be no. A mother's not going to forget the child she just gave birth to. But here's the truth. In a fallen and broken world, that can happen. And, And God says, as unlikely as that is, it is even less likely that I will forget you because I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. You see what he said? He said, I've got your name written right here. I can't forget you. Every time I look in my hand, I see your name. He says, he'll never forget you. I will not forget you. So as we think about our struggles in believing and trusting in in God's wonderful salvation in Jesus. We need to be reminded that even if we're forgetful, he never is. He remembers us. He knows us by name and he cares for us. In our darkest moments, he still cares for us. 
That's number one. We may forget, Jesus always remembers. Let's look at the second thing, verse 22. Um, we'll, we'll, go down to, um, we'll go down to the end of the chapter, verse 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. They can... Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine." then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, here's the thing. This is kind of, that's kind of a graphic passage, a little violent. Um, What he's talking about here in the context is God's deliverance of his people out of the hands of the Babylonians. And we saw in the last couple of weeks in this book that he's going to use a very unlikely hero to accomplish that. This guy named Cyrus, who's the king of Persia. But um, that ultimately Cyrus is pointing us to Jesus as the ultimate hero. And so here's here's what he's saying. In all of that, he's he's making a very clear point. Um, And this is the second thing we need to remember as we struggle to, to love and follow the Lord. We need to remember that without him, we would lose every battle we face. But with him, with his sovereign power and his strength, we win through Jesus. Jesus wins the battles that he fights. And that's true on a macro level, and that's true on a micro level. It's true in the sense that God is going to be victorious once and for all. He actually already is, but it will be fully realized upon his return to the earth that he has been victorious over sin and Satan and death itself. Jesus is victorious over all of our enemies. On a macro level, that's true. On a major big picture level, that's true. But it's also true on the micro level of you as an individual person. The struggles that I have in following Jesus, the sins that I'm so prone to cave into, will one day be defeated once and for all in my life. And that's true for yours, your life as well. In the things that we are so prone to, to believe and buy into that don't align with God's word, those things will be conquered in Christ once and for all. Without him, we would lose every fight we had against sin and against our enemies. But with Jesus, he wins every battle. 
You may think he's forsaken you, but he hasn't. He's actually winning the war for you. All right, one more. Verse 1 through 3 of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold my rebuke. I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their coverings. Now, here's, again, kind of graphic, but here's the point that he's making. It's very clear. He's telling us this, that by, by using all of our human attempts to save ourselves, we're going to perish. We're going to fail to save ourselves. You cannot save yourself by your efforts. But that's where the Lord enters in. The Lord enters in by, in verse 2, it says, Is my hand shortened that it cannot save or redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? God is saying to you, listen, you have no power in yourself, but I do. And I have the power to save you. My arm is not too short to reach you and save you. My arm is powerful and strong to bring about your salvation. So we need to be reminded of these things, especially in the dark moments of our hearts where we think Jesus is, is forgotten, forgotten us or has forsaken us. We need to remember that he always has us on his mind. He's always winning his battles. And he is strong to save The only thing we really have to do from here is to throw away all the things we think we can bring to the table, toss them to the side, and come to him. Come to him knowing who he is, knowing that he is the light of the world to shine in the darkness so that we can clearly see, that he is the savior of the world who came to redeem people from all places in all languages and tribes that this Jesus will never forsake us never forget us he is confident in his power to save because he is the sovereign Lord of all let's be grateful for who he is I know that it's that it's tempting for us to slip into darkness and to think that we've been forsaken. But the real response that we ought to have, the true response that we ought to have is worship. Worship of a God who has been so good, so faithful, 
and has saved us beyond any ability of our own to do. Let's raise our voice in thanks to him. Let's be grateful this morning for all that he's done for us in Jesus. And let's lift up our voices to sing this morning as we transition into our time of worship. With all that said, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing together. Father, thank you for remembering your children, for remembering us even when we've forgotten you. Father, thank you for winning our battles through Jesus. We pray we would continue to see more and more victories in our lives through him. And Lord, we thank you that you have not allowed us to perish because your arm has reached out to save us. We praise you for all these things and we lift them all to you in praise and thanks and we exalt you this morning and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.